This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, September 5th. And now, please rise for the Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are twin brothers. This is a weekly baseball podcast. Uh, Paul, happy Labor Day. Same to you. We are recording this on a Friday night, a couple days before we normally do, because of Labor Day weekend plans. Much to Peter's displeasure. He's not a fan of the Friday night time slot. Yes, this is uh, less than ideal. Um, also less than ideal for dinner tonight, I opened a recently purchased bag of grapes. I got the ones with seeds. Mm. Why do they make grapes? Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Does anyone enjoy that? Is it more healthy, healthier? The only thing I could think of was maybe non, uh, GMO. I don't know. Uh, not a fan. So I couldn't eat those. So didn't have my fruit for dinner, but we're staying optimistic. We're gonna have a great podcast. Absolutely. Um, what What do you have planned for Labor Day weekend? I'm headed to Memphis. Walking in Memphis. Walking in Memphis. Yeah, we my, have our outro song already. <laughs> a coworker of mine is getting married outside of Memphis, so we'll head there Sunday. And then you're headed the opposite direction. Yes, headed to Milwaukee on Labor Day for Cubs Brewers. Going to tailgate with some friends, and then uh, go to the game. Should be fun. Uh, Future NL Cy Young winner Kyle Hendricks on the mound for the Cubs. Uh, How about the Brewers? You agree that he's a Cy Young? Uh, potential. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. Uh, I think Kyle Davies starting for the Brewers. Yeah, so forgive us if we're off our game a bit uh, with the Friday night uh, recording. We also apologize if anything major happened Saturday or Sunday. In the world of baseball. Uh, thanks to Nelly for our intro song. Uh, our Nelly fun fact this week is a uh, audio clip of his interview he did with First Take back in 2010. Uh, so I think a few months ago we played a, an interview he did on ESPN with Mike and Mike. Um, so this one is from First Take, and the interviewer is Dana Jacobson. Uh, so here is, uh, here's that clip. That's fair. Now, how about baseball? Your first love? Who taught? I mean, who taught you how to play? Who got it's you? It's crazy. My mom taught me how to play baseball. Really? Yeah. My what was mom, that like? She she used to play third base, um, softball. Okay. And you know, just growing up, my father, you know, he he's not too athletic. He can he can drive a car though. <laughs> you know. Um, right. But my mom was she had all the athletic ability when when I was growing up, and she showed me. She bought me my first love, and she took me outside and. You know, she made me get up against the wall and throw the ball oh, I like and, that. and all of that. So, you know, she gave me up. Uh, give me some idea about your Cardinals now this year. Not the, not the year that you were hoping for for them, obviously. What do you think has happened? Well, um... The Reds. Is that, I, I, I happened, just want yeah. to say that. Uh, <laughs> um, pretty much um, somebody else woke up in the Central on us. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It wasn't who we expected. I think, I think we kind of got blindsided by the Reds a little bit. And I think by the time we... We realized that they were serious. It was a 
tad bit late. You know, um, I think everybody was focused in on the Cubs so much and what they should have been doing. Right. And, and, you know, obviously they couldn't get their motor going, and by the time we looked up, the Reds were six, seven games out in front, and it was too late. Ryan Howard's another St. Louis guy. Yeah. And if I remember, I feel like you maybe started telling us about this um, on first and ten. The first time you watched him play, was it at a major league at some type of tryout was it? well no well actually um me and ryan would it was was at the same tryout um it was a braves camp a tryout camp that it came to st louis okay and, um they invited us out and we were um the only three brothers at the camp me him and a friend a friend of ours named reggie and he remembered me actually from that and i was just <laughs> like you know i was just like hey ryan out he's like you don't remember me do you we were at the champ together this and that this i was like oh word I was like, and this is after he hit like 50 home runs. <laughs> and I think he signed a 17 mil a year contract. Right, and I'm right. like, well, why didn't you take me with you? You know what I'm saying? I was what do you say about, what do you remember about your baseball skills? Um, well, um, he remembered the speed a little bit, okay. you know, but um, I don't know. I was pretty much concentrating on that 17 mil a year he just got, <laughs> I think, at that point. Well, Nelly, it's not like you're hurting here. No, I'm not hurting, but, you know, guaranteed money is always the best. <laughs> well, there might be some guaranteed money, I think, in the DVD. Tell us about uh, Celebrity Sweat. What was the idea? So we'll cut out there before Nelly tries to sell us uh, something. Um, but, yeah, there is his first take interview in 2010 when the Reds uh, won the division. Um, things have changed a little bit since then. Uh, so on this week's podcast... Got uh, some things we're pretty excited about. First, we're, uh, we've got some banter, and then our baseball on TV segment. We watched an episode of the TV show Psych, one of our favorite TV shows. Um, and then we've got Out of the Box, a couple different articles that we've read, and then TWTW. Paul, what are we looking at this week? Uh, as prompted by Scott, who is our Foot in the Box Summer Flicks guest this week, I took a look at uh, The Last Person to Steal Home to win a game, a walk-off steal of home. Very cool. A la Benny the Jet. It's happened before? Uh, several times. Wow. Okay, and then after that, we've got Sanja the Game. Uh, Tim Tebow is the clue there for what we're going to um, hear in Sanja the Game. After that, we have a very cool guest. Yeah, this week I had the, the pleasure of sitting down with a professor at the U of I, Adrian Burgos. He studies or researches the... Um, History of Latinos in Baseball. So this is the second uh, professor we've had yes. on our podcast, uh, Alan Nathan, in the off season, and now uh, um, Adrian. So really yeah. excited about that. Yeah, definitely. Good get there. Uh, after that, we're going to talk to Scott. Like Paul mentioned, he was our Summer Flicks viewing partner this past week. He is the last Summer Flicks guest on the podcast uh, for this year. And he watched Sandlot with us this past week, and so we'll talk to him about it. And then we'll close out the podcast with bottom of the ninth. First, Paul, uh, our Matt Bush update. This past week, which is really just a few games because we're recording this on a Friday night, <laughs> less than ideal, uh, he just had one appearance, two innings pitched, one earned run, one walk, one strikeout, through a season high and therefore a career high 31 pitches. So that's your Matt Bush update. Um, you got uh, anything from around baseball? Yeah, a couple things. Um, I've got our Jacob Webb update. Unfortunately, our last <laughs> Jacob Webb update. He was killed. 
Uh, he was not killed. Oh, no. For those that haven't been listening or following, uh, he's a pitcher for the Danville Braves rookie ball affiliate of the Braves. And uh, he had pitched eight and a third innings and struck out 23 batters in that time period. And uh, the record, which is held by Edwin Diaz's 24 batters in a nine-inning stretch. Diaz killed him. <laughs> he did not. So Webb needed uh, to strike out the next two uh he needed to strike out the next two batters for the two outs he recorded. He pitched on Tuesday this past week, and he pitched an inning and didn't strike out anyone. So uh, he went nine innings and struck out 23 batters, which uh, is nothing to sneeze at, but it's still falling short of Diaz. And it was pretty anticlimactic. He came in to a 9-1 game. His team was down 9-1 to uh, in the ninth inning, and uh, they're... There still is nothing being written about it. Um, I searched for like 10 minutes, so I seem to be the only one that cares about Jacob Webb. <laughs> well, shout out to Sam Miller, who wrote the original yeah. piece. Uh, he is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, has been for a few years. He um, is one of Paul and I's favorite baseball writers, just took a job at ESPN. Right. It starts in the beginning of October. So excited that more people will get to read him and his work. Uh, but also sad because I really liked him at Baseball Prospectus. Yep, just hope Effectively Wild, his podcast with Ben Lindbergh, continues. Yes, I agree. The uh, the other thing I had was um, the Mets. Tebow. Well, Tebow, but before Tebow. Okay. The Mets seem to be cursed. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Neil Walker is out for the year. Um, back surgery. Uh, he was probably their second best hitter. Um Two and a half war up until now, OPS plus of around 120. So he had had a decent season, um, but now that's, I think, three-fourths of their infield is uh, out for the year when you include Duda and uh, Wright. Yeah. And then Cespedes has been off and on the DL, and, um, yeah, they just... uh, They won three out of four against the Marlins, though, this past week. Right, yeah. But then, yeah, that's not even to mention Harvey and then DeGrom had a scare earlier this week. Yeah. Steven Matz, too, might be out for the year. Yeah. All right, so getting into Mr. Tebow. Uh, he worked out for teams this past Tuesday mm-hmm. uh, in California. Uh, 28 of the 30 teams in baseball were there in attendance. No Cubs. And no athletics. Uh, so the Cubs and A's were the only two teams not present. Uh, Paul, what did you make of it? Did he meet your expectations? Yeah, I mean, I think he definitely looked impressive, like swinging a bat. But I kind of assumed that he would. Um, the you know, going back to my hot take a couple of weeks ago, I I think he's gotten kind of a raw deal out of all this. Um, again, not saying that he's going to be a major league player, but if he wants to give it a shot, this is really his only way to do that. You know, he can't have a a low key tryout like it just wouldn't be possible. The media would gravitate towards it no matter you know, how, how hush hush he tried to keep it. So I have some sympathy for him. Um, if I had to put money on it, I would say that he would not make it to the big leagues. Um, of course not. Right. But, uh, I, uh, read earlier this week, Christopher Crawford, who's a, a prospect guy for BP and ESPN. Uh, he said in an interview, so he was asked based on everything we know, if you were a scout, are you recommending your team to pursue him? His answer surprised me. He said, uh, I think I would. I just don't see the harm in giving it a shot. 
for Tebow to look as good as he did in the workout with that much time away from the game is really impressive. And if you really believe in your player development staff, this is the kind of athlete who can help a big league club. There were some quotes like that. There were also some quotes uh, that said Tebow looked pretty terrible, especially in the outfield. Yeah, his arm was pretty terrible. Did right? you see? But the way he held his glove, did you see that? Uh, yeah, he. I saw so, like, when he threw, he squeezed it like a pancake, <laughs> and like he he did the uh, thing where you put all five fingers in the same hole, which mm-hmm. you would think that's like the natural way to hold it. But if you've played baseball for long at all, you know you either stick one finger out or you you know, do the two fingers in the one hole and we're getting into some weird words, (laughs) uh, spoken, but, uh, if you just watch video of that or see pictures of it, uh, the way he holds his glove in the outfield, especially when he's throwing, it just looks really awkward to, uh, uh, quote some of the people or maybe channel the spirit of some of the scouts for Moneyball. He really fills out a uniform. (laughs) though. Oh yeah. He looks jacked. Um, His pants were small. Yeah. Really short. Yeah. Really short. I think you or someone else tweeted that he looked like uh, somebody from like a Dick's commercial. Yeah. With like the generic. Yeah. I mean, all Adidas stuff. So I'm sure he got paid for that. But no, like there was no, the logo wasn't prominent on the. It's true. Shirt. It's true. Um, the the uh, Braves have already offered him a contract. Braves and Rockies, I saw. Um, that's probably the big story that's going to come out this weekend. Is that he's going to sign with yeah, one of those teams? Exactly. Yeah, I would put the chances of him making a major league team at uh, below one percent. But you think someone will sign him? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, again, the timing of it is so weird, though. Like minor league seasons are ending right now. Right. Uh, a Venezuelan winter league team offered him a contract. If he's serious about playing baseball, he should definitely go there because you have to get as many innings as you can in because he's so old. Uh, so. If he, to me, if he doesn't go play winter ball somewhere, that shows that he's not serious about this. That it's just a promotional thing. Because yeah. if he was serious about making the majors, he would go yeah, I mean, play winter, winter he ball. He could somewhere. have like speaking engagements and like stuff with his charity that well, would Well, exactly. But if he's going to keep that stuff, then he's not going to play major yeah. league baseball. I just re- I realized. He's going to be 30 by the time he starts in the minor leagues. It's yeah. nuts. I just realized how annoying spring training coverage of him is going to be if he does sign with the Braves or the. Yeah. Okay, well, that that's our Tebow discussion for this week's podcast. Uh, now it's time for Baseball on TV. Paul, it was your selection this week. Yeah, so we're rolling with Psych, which is a great show. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. Uh, Only for one more month. Wow. And it's getting pulled from Netflix. Uh, late 2000s is when it came out. We watched it when we were in high school. 2006 yeah. to 2014. The episode we watched was Season 6, Episode 5, Dead Man's Curveball. Um, the Santa Barbara Seabirds, it's a double A team or single A single A team. Um, and Sean, the main character has a, um, long history with them. He was a bat boy for them growing up. But, uh, <laughs> this episode also marks the return of Danny Glover as manager. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about angels in the outfield, um, where Danny Glover is a manager and he Plays the role of Mel Hornsby. Mel, clearly, combination an, an of honoring of, of Mel, Mel Ott, uh, his fallen pitcher, oh. Mel Clark. Yeah, Mel Ott. Well, it's a combination of Mel Ott and Roger Hornsby. That's that's the reason behind it, right? Yeah, the, huh. name, of the name of the character is Mel Hornsby. So he's the manager for the single A team. You read that somewhere? Yeah, on the IMDb page. Huh. 
Uh, he's this manager of a single A team, and his uh, hitting coach suddenly dies. He's older, but uh, he dies of uh, a drug overdose, um, and he just can't. Mel Danny Glover just can't believe that he would uh, be into drugs, so he asked Sean to investigate it and figure out how that happened. And Sean plays a psychic detective. Correct. Yeah. So he's looking into uh, into the case from kind of a unique perspective, and uh, Sean becomes a coach, and his, his friend Gus becomes a mascot to get as close to the case as possible. Um, uh, later in the episode, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, first baseman for the Seabirds, Izzy Jackson, which is a questionable name. Uh, he dies after leaving a clubhouse argument. Um, Izzy it, Jackson's like a top prospect. Right. Fast track with the bigs. So Izzy leaves the clubhouse after another Danny Glover outburst in the, in the locker room. We're going to play that clip in a second. Uh, he is beat over the head with a bat uh, right outside the clubhouse. Um Initially, Mel, Danny Glover, is uh, interviewed because he's the prime suspect. They realize that it couldn't be him because he bats left-handed and the person who hit him was right-handed. Skipping ahead again, uh, Sean comes up with all these potential scenarios of killers and plot lines. Uh, it ends up being the general manager um, of the organization, Neil Stillman. He had signed Izzy Jackson to a ridiculous contract. <laughs> I don't know if you got the particulars of this, Peter, but as I understand it, the contract was that he had to be promoted within 60 days of joining the team, promoted or traded, which is a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, on top of that, promoting him to the majors would cost the team $10 million. Mm -hmm. So they had to pay him $10 million if they promoted him. Um, or they had to try trading him. Mm -hmm. And so because he didn't want to pay the $10 million, he killed him. And that was like his signature move as the general manager. Right. Was yeah. this, this signing of Izzy Jackson. Yeah. He, he said if he didn't give him this deal, this contract, then another team would. Mm -hmm. So could be a Tebow situation. Yeah. Do you think, uh, Jeff Passan wrote an article earlier this year about like the 10 worst contracts in baseball history. <laughs> And Ryan Howard was number one. Uh, he had a five-year, $125 million extension. It's Nelly's boy. Negative 4.1 war. Do you think Ruben ever considered axing him? Uh, I don't, what, happen, what happens to that money when a guy dies? Uh, well, you don't have to. Well, that's a good point. I, I mean, you don't have to pay it. I wonder if you owe that to the, like. I mean, some contracts have been that bad. I'm sure George Steinbrenner thought about it. All right, uh, some nuggets of info for you, Paul. Um, Santa Barbara does not have a minor league baseball team. Uh, the Seahawks are a fictional ball club. Seabirds. Seabirds, sorry. Santa Barbara Seabirds. Uh, the Santa Barbara Dodgers were a minor league team uh, in Santa Barbara that stopped playing in 1967, and they haven't had a team since then. So perhaps the Seabirds are an ode uh, to the Dodgers, the Dodgers, Santa Barbara Dodgers, moved to Bakersfield in 1967, and they actually just lost their team at the end of this year. Hmm. They're moving, and it's kind of a big deal. If you Google that, you'll see a bunch of articles written. Uh, they have a really unique uh, ballpark. They can't start games until after the sun goes down because of the backdrop. Like, hitters would be looking right into the sun, oh. and they've tried different things, but... 
None of them work, so they can't start playing until like after 8 p.m. Oh. Um, yep. Uh, so the clip we're going to play this week is Danny Glover, um, who is the manager in this movie, like Paul said. And similar to Angel in the Outfield, he makes another clubhouse speech to rally the troops. Um, and this speech is ended with a appearance by a very special guest, Mr. Wade Boggs. That man was a total disgrace. Total disgrace. Only a bunch of damn idiots fight on field with their own men. Bunch of damn idiots. Hey, will you stop that? Sorry. There's going to be some major changes around here. Do you hear me? Izzy, where do you think you're going? I'm out. It's Friday night. Hey, you're tired enough. Get back over there. Damn it, I said get back here. All right, guys, listen. Uh, about the changes Mel uh, referred to, I will be hitting third tomorrow. On where is he? Where is he? Yeah. This ain't over, Cahoon. Where's Mel? I just went after Izzy. Thanks. By the way, I don't know who you are, but you're fired. I'm your new hitting coach. No, this is the new hitting coach. That's way bombs. Oh, my God. Gus! Gus, stop it! Wade Boggs is here. you have any idea what this man has accomplished? For 17 seasons, he ate chicken before every single game. I also won five batting titles and was a 12-time All-Star. Grilled to crispy. Very funny. I don't know. Gus never kids around about food. Nope. Mostly crispy. Wow. That's impressive. See what I'm saying? All right, uh, I have a unusual article for Out of the Box this week. Um, the title of the article gives away what the content is. It's, here's why baseball bats are much more popular in Russia than baseballs. It finally happened. We have the same article. Really? Yes. Wow. First time in 66 episodes. Uh, Luckily, I came with two articles prepared. Okay. So, yeah, I'm adequately... Uh, informed to talk about this article. Um, the article was by Matt Snyder of CBS Sports. I read the USA Today version. Okay, so maybe it's different scoop each way. Um, the gist of the article is that there is a huge surge of uh, baseball bats being purchased in Russia. Mm-hmm. And initially you would think that might be because baseball's on the rise in Russia. Um, but that's not the case, unfortunately. Moscow's traffic police chief speculates that the rise is uh, due to road conflicts. So I'm quoting here from Victor Kavalanko, who, as I mentioned, is the traffic police chief in Moscow. He says, road conflicts with drivers using weapons, bats, and knives have become more frequent. One hardly knows where to play baseball in Russia. The game is not popular in the country. Um, Did you see in 2014... They sold one baseball and one baseball glove. I saw that. That can't be true. That's what they say. That can't be true. Um, yeah, so over 500,000 bats were sold in Russia last year. Um, but it sounds like more to be used as a weapon than um, to actually play baseball. So there you go. Baseball bats surging in Russia, but um, it's so that they can beat each other up with them. Good stuff. Uh, my version was from Ted Berg of the USA Today, so we'll link to both of those on the podcast episode page. My second article that I came prepared to discuss 
is from Beyond the Box Score. The author is a Japanese fellow, Kazuo Yamakazi. Yamaz- Yamazaki. Kazuo Yama- Yamazaki. Hopefully I'm getting that. You sound pretty <laughs> confident there. Yes. So he writes an article about uh, a high school baseball tournament in Japan called the Koshien, K-O-S-H-I-E-N. Apparently it's a famous baseball tournament in Japan. It's a really big deal, uh, really high, highly attended. Um, people go nuts over it. And a lot of times the stars of this high school baseball tournament end up being the stars of Japanese baseball and then sometimes American baseball. Uh, the article, though, looks at pitch counts in this high school tournament, and uh, they are insane. Hmm. Uh, so the highest individual pitch counts in this year's tournament, uh, so this is individual games. Uh, the top five were 187, 183, 177, 164, and 153. Wow. And these are all like 17, 18-year-old kids? Yes, all high school kids. And so uh, just reading from the article here, uh, he says, the highest total of pitches in a single game during the tournament belongs to Makoto Yadawe, a half-Japanese, half-Nigerian righty whose uh, team saw a first-round elimination after he gave up a walk-off hit in the bottom of the ninth inning on his 187th pitch. For comparison's sake, no big league pitcher has exceeded a pitch count that high, at least in Baseball Reference's Play Index database, since Sandy Koufax who threw a whopping 205 pitches in a 13-inning complete game in wow. 1961. Wow. Note that Attaway's first word after the loss was sorry to his catcher for allowing the walk-off hit. Wow, that's so sad. Uh, continuing in the article, in terms of innings pitch, the single-game leader was <laughs> Mizuki Hori, which is most certainly not how you pronounce that, uh, who threw all 12 innings on 177 pitches in Hiroshima Shinju's first-round game. For him, it wasn't his first 170-plus pitch outing, as he had thrown 172 pitches in the final game of the regional tournament two weeks prior to his 12-inning game at Koshien. His summer lasted a couple more games as he threw 90 and 103-pitch complete games on four and one day's rest, respectively. So that's right, 103 pitches on one day's rest. Insane. In this tournament, uh, so the article goes on to talk about how these these pitchers that I just talked about uh, aren't even the most abused pitchers. Really, the most abused pitchers are the teams that have to have a deep run to win the tournament. And this year, the pitcher that had the most wear and tear was Kento Yunishi, who single-handedly propelled his team all the way from the first round of the regional tournament to the Koshian final. And as the author says, it's the equivalent of collecting all seven Dragon Balls for every high school baseball player in Japan. During that span of carrying his team from the regional tournament to the Koshian final, um, it lasted from June 29th to August 22nd, uh, Onishi amassed 80 innings of the team's 93 total defensive innings. 39 of those 80 innings came in this Koshian tournament. In five of his starts, two of them were on zero days rest and another was on one day rest. He threw a grand total of 527 pitches and completed four games. His pitch count total was the second highest mark among any pitcher in the tournament. On the morning of the final, Yunishi reportedly felt soreness in his elbow. Still, he started the game with help of pain pills. Again, this is a high schooler. Only to get knocked out in the fourth inning, leaving the bases loaded with, without getting an out. 
Uh, this is not a rare sight in the Koshian. In fact, 20 of the 90 total starts came on three days rest or less. Due to its single elimination format, the kids are forced back on the mound on a short day's rest as they go deeper into the tournament. Um, so you might be thinking, oh, they're just not throwing as hard, but that's not true either. Some of these guys are topping out in the mid-90s. Uh, they're just young kids that are just getting uh, abused. Yeah, that's hard. These teams. And none of, none of these players, you talk to them or their coaches, they all uh, want to pitch and they want to win this tournament because it's such a big deal. That's heartbreaking because you think like um, both uh, Tanaka and um, Darvish have had elbow issues. Darvish had Tommy John. Mm-hmm. Tanaka, you know, is kind of trying to pitch through whatever's going on in his elbow. You would think that that would kind of like translate back to Japan as, you know, being a little more cognizant of pitch counts and that sort of thing. Sure. But yeah. Or they could speak up um, and say that's, you know, it's not a great idea to, to be doing this. The hard thing about pitch counts, like, you know, the Orioles with Dylan Bundy took a really conservative approach, you know, wouldn't allow him to pitch more than I think three innings to start. And then he blows out his elbow. And so then everyone says that, that muddies the waters. And so, People say, well, you know, it, it really doesn't matter how many innings you pitch a guy. Just pitch until their arm you mm-hmm. know, breaks, essentially. Yep. Uh, I remember telling my coach in uh, our senior year uh, in the regional that we played in, I threw the opening game, probably threw around 100 pitches, and then I think our regional final was um, on three days rest or maybe two days rest. And I remember telling him, oh, I'm good to pitch, um, but really my arm is killing me. Right. Just throbbing. And so I can't even imagine to throw 100 pitches and then on one or zero days rest to do the exact same thing. Um, yeah, you have to be taking crazy. Su- some sort of supplement, which sounds like he was taking painkillers. Yeah, it's nuts that that's like a public thing and everyone's okay with it. Okay, well, that does it for Out of the Box. You can find those articles in our podcast episode page. Next up. Paul's got TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, as I mentioned in our intro, um, for TWTW this week, I'm looking at. Uh, Stealing home, and specifically stealing home to win a game, um, so a walk-off. And it hasn't been done for over 30 years, uh, but um, it happened last in August of 1982. Do you think we have any listeners that were living <laughs> in 1982? Hopefully. Um, but it was by the backup catcher for the Cardinals. Backup catcher. Glenn Brummer. Uh, guess how many stolen bases he had in his career? Six. Four. Thirty-three uh, percent rate for stolen bases and a dozen attempts. <laughs> so, kind of the unlikeliest candidate. Wonder how many of those attempts came after he walked it off. Gives you like a lifetime. Kind of big, big head. Yeah. Whitey Herzog was the manager of the Cardinals then, and he's notorious for having teams that steal a ton of bases. That was the. Ozzie Smith, Vince Coleman era, and um, so it was It was his call. Um, but uh, it happened on a 2-2 count, and there's controversy around it. You can actually go out online. Maybe we'll link to it on our podcast page. The pitch, so there are two outs in the inning, and the pitch looked to be a strike. 
but because of all the commotion, the, you know, the catcher stands up and, uh, Brummer slides to the front part of the bag. There's so much commotion that the umpire sort of loses track. And so it would have been strike three on the end of the inning, likely if you know, Brummer hadn't stole. Um, but he, he actually stole it pretty easy. Um, and it's a pretty great call by Mike Shannon, who was, who was around back then. Um, the two players who do it prior to Brummer to, to win on a walk-off steal of home were both Hall of Famers. George Brett of the Royals in 1976 and Eddie Murray of the Orioles in 1979. Murray was kind of surprising to me. I don't, certainly don't think of him as a speed guy. George Brett, that kind of fits with the narrative I have of him. Um, uh, just a little more general research on stealing base in general. Ty Cobb accomplished, uh, that feat 54 times, wow. which is the most in baseball history. And then uh, Babe Ruth actually stole home uh, 38. Or Babe Ruth is one of 38 players in Major League history to steal home at least 10 times, hmm. which doesn't really fit with the narrative I have. You think it used, like if you scored in a wild pitch, it used to be counted as a steal of home or something like that? No, I just think it was much more common. And maybe catchers were less athletic or, you know, Certainly when pitchers don't throw as hard, it's a little bit easier. Do you ever come across someone getting tagged out at home to end the game? Uh, I didn't. No. The last, you know the last player to steal home? It was this year, right? Mm-hmm. Ellsbury did it. You're right, yeah. Okay. He's done it a few times. All right, well, that's good stuff. Uh, that was TWTW TW, uh, Hawk Harrelson this week. Did you see he... Compared Todd Frazier to Chris Bryant, I did not know. Said that Chris Bryant is no Todd Frazier. Wow! In what way? Uh, defensively. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> well, that does it for TWTW. Next up, sounds of the game. This week on the podcast, we are looking back to 1990, July 17th, 1990. And I mentioned earlier that Tim Tebow was the uh, kind of tease for this uh, segment. Not going to play anything from his career, but I wanted to look at two baseball players that were also great uh, football players. I thought you were going to go Florida post-game press conference with Tebow. (laughs) Nope. Uh, So one player hit three home runs, and the team he was playing uh, also had a football-slash-baseball player that hit an inside-the-park homer. Can you name these two players, Paul? Say that. Repeat that one more time. So the date is July 17th, 1990. Uh, Two teams are playing each other. One player on one team hit three home runs. He's someone that plays both baseball and football. On the other team was another player that did both sports that hit an inside-the-park home run. I'm going to go Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders. That is correct. One guessing game that you've won (laughs) on the podcast. Uh, yes, yeah, so Bo Jackson hit three homers, and Deion Sanders hit the inside the Parker. Both these guys are just fascinating players to look at, uh, to look at their Wikipedia, baseball reference, uh, those sorts of things. Um, so first, let's look at Deion Sanders. Uh, Paul, how many career home runs do you think Showtime hit? Um, how many years or did he prime play? prime time. Wasn't it prime time? Yeah, prime time. How many years did he play? Uh, played nine seasons, uh, but not full seasons. I'll say 45. He had 39, which is more than I was expecting. I thought he was more of a, a speed guy. 
Uh, he had a 3.2 WAR season in 1992, by far his best season. With what the, was his high for stolen bases? The Braves, um, 56 stolen bases in 115 games in 1997, second in the National League. In 92, that 3.2 WAR season, uh, he led all of baseball in triples with 14. Uh, he also played in the World Series that year with the Braves, um, lost to the Blue Jays in the World Series. Uh, in the World Series, he went 8 for 15 with two walks, and he was 5 for 5 in steals. So a very good uh, World Series performance. What was his on-base percentage like? I'm not sure. That's a good question. Dion is the only man to play in a Super Bowl and a World Series. And on September 5th, and this is the reason why, along with Tebow, that I'm doing this Sounds of the Game this week, uh, September 5th, which is Labor Day, the day this episode will come out, he hit his second career home run with the Yankees, and a few days later, on a Sunday, he had a 68-yard punt return for the Falcons. Of course, as the only player to hit a home run and have a touchdown in the same week, mm-hmm. Bo Jackson would be the other person, and that never happened. And funny enough, that Falcons game where he had the punt return uh, was against the L.A. Rams, but the reason that's funny is because they played at the Oakland Coliseum, so it was a baseball field. Uh, that he scored it on, so you can see the dirt oh, wow. dirt field. So getting into our actual clips that we're going to play this week, uh, they come from the um, July 17th game that I talked about earlier. Bo Jackson, who himself had a great career, eight years in the bigs, 141 career home runs, um, probably pretty overrated just because of uh, how great of an athlete he was. His highest war season by far was 3.5, never had much uh, close to that, um, of course, was hurt by his injury to his hip um, that stopped both his baseball and football career. But Bo Jackson in this game hits three home runs and then hurts himself trying to catch Dion's inside the parker, separates his shoulder, has to come out. So we're going to play both those clips. Um, first, Bo Jackson hitting three home runs. Hit well to center field. Dion Sanders going back to the wall and it is gone Bo Jackson homers to put the Royals ahead 2-0 there isn't any place that Bo would rather hit one than over Deion Sanders head Bo with a two run homer his first time up here tonight and hits this ball deep to right center field, way back. Forget it. Jackson with his second home run in two tries tonight. That's 18 on the year. He's driven in four runs in the ball game, and the Royals lead 5-1. to one. I've never seen a right-handed hitter go that deep in the seats. Gets some hang time as well. Some more hang time. Deep to right. The hat trick. Make it 12 total bases. What can you say? We may be watching history tonight. He'll be up again. 
When this guy gets it going, it's something to watch. So that was Bo's three homers. Uh, next up, we have Deion Sanders inside the Parker. Stottlemyre ready again with a 3-2 pitch. Drill to center field. Bo Jackson going over, leaps and can't get it. It goes all the way to the fence. Deion Sanders blazing around second. Tabler goes over to get the ball, plays it in there, waving him home. The throw to the plate gets on by. Sanders flies over, and now he is safe at home. There's a pile of bodies at the plate. Here comes John Wathen out to argue. McFarlane is hot. Nick Schwartz, the Royals trainer, is out taking a look at Bo Jackson, who's back on his feet in center field. Moving his left arm. Bo came up just a little short on the diving catch in center. It was a good job of Stottlemyre, the rookie, backing up behind the plate and gets the ball back to McFarland in a hurry. Watch how quickly he gets that throw back. Excellent job by Mel Stottlemyre, Jr. And if McFarland could just have hung on. Now it looks like Bo Jackson's going to have to come out of the game. And this will cost him a chance at history. He had a chance to hit his fourth home run in one game. No Royal has ever done that. Only one Yankee has ever done that. The great Lou Gehrig. Take another look at the play. They were looking at his left shoulder. So, uh, pretty telling that um, the Yankee stadium crowd is booing when Bo Jackson has to come out of the game. Yeah. Uh, Great, great athlete. Uh, I timed Dion's inside the Parker like we did a couple weeks ago. 14.6, which I think is at least a couple seconds better than... um, Bobby Bray, who had the fastest since 2000. Four seconds faster than us. Yes. <laughs> yep, and I'll tweet out that video uh, so everyone can see it. Uh, so from, the, from the sounds of it, the if the throw would have been accurate, he would have been out. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it had enough time for it to go over the catcher, <laughs> pitcher, catch it, and then throw it back. To Scramble back, yep. So that was Deion Sanders and Bo Jackson, both center fielders. To end this sounds the game, I'm going to play his punt return from uh, the week of September 5th uh, back in 1989. Deion Sanders brought his arms up again just for a moment, not asking the crowd really to to holler, but making a movement, and Hatcher kicks it a mile. I mean a mile. Deion drifts to the left, takes it on to 32, dropped it. Picked it up. One man missed him. Another man missed him. Now he's going wide off to the right. Deion to the 25, to the 30, to the 35, the 40, the 45, the 50, the 45, the 40. My God, Deion Sanders is going (laughs) to score. My God. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we had the uh, unique pleasure of sitting down with another University of Illinois professor this week. We sat down, or I sat down, with Adrian Burgos Jr., who is a professor at the U of I. He studies uh, Latinos in baseball. He's written two books, uh, one in 2007 called Playing America's Game, and then one in 2011 called The Cuban Star. Both are really good reads. Uh, you can find those anywhere books are sold. Uh, he's also worked with Ken Burns and the Hall of Fame, and there's a recent documentary done in which he 
played a primary role that we'll link to in the podcast page. So he's done a lot of great work, and uh, it was really great of him to sit down with us. So without further ado, my conversation with Adrian Burgos. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Burgos. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we dig into to some of your research, uh, first just wanted to get, get a sense for your own personal history with baseball, your own personal experience, so maybe where you grew up, who you rooted for, and whether you still follow baseball closely today. Well, I'm a Yankee fan, and I know that draws a bad. lot of uh, hisses and moans and groans. <laughs> I was born in the Bronx, and uh, there was a hospital that used to be on the Grand Concourse about 15 blocks away from Yankee Stadium, Bronx Lebanon Hospital. And so kind of grew up, born in the shadow of Yankee Stadium. And then when my family moved down to South Florida, we moved to Fort Lauderdale, hmm. about a mile and a half away from Little Yankee Stadium, where the Yankees used to do their spring training and had an A-ball team. And so, you know, I grew up on the Yankees, and I still follow them, and, you know, pleased that they actually turned a terrible season into at least some enjoyable games. Yeah. As Barry Sanchez kind of helped revive the team. As I joke with some of my fellow Yankee fans, A-Rod did something for us this season. He got out of the way, um, and that really helped the club. Um, and, you know, I inherited really kind of a love of baseball from my family, from my grandmothers who were baseball followers. And, uh, and it was, I'll share a quick story sure. and even about how I, like baseball has always affected our family in, in ways that I wasn't even aware so after I finished publishing my very first book, Playing America, well, actually submitting the book for publication, um, I went down to Georgia where my parents now live, and my uncle who lives in Sarasota, Florida, oh, then he passed away, but he came up to visit, and I was like very excited to tell him book is in, it'll be out in months, and that there was a baseball player, a Puerto Rican that played in the Negro Leagues, who had his same name, Jose Antonio Burgos. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Your grandmother named me after him. Wow. And I was just like, I didn't know the story. But then it reminded me of how much baseball was already part of the family story in ways that, you know, we can even not be aware of. Yeah. So I'm a baseball guy. Yeah. Um, in that first book, you, uh, you write that, and I'm quoting here, the history of Latinos and baseball is rife with misconceptions. What would you say are kind of the two to three most commonly held misconceptions about Latinos baseball integrating to America? Yeah, I think one, it started with Roberto Clemente. That people, if I asked them, do you know who Vincent Nava was or do you know who Esteban Bayan was, they'd probably draw a blank and mm -hmm. like, no. Um, you know, Nava was the first U.S. Latino to play in the major leagues and uh, played in the 1880s. And, um, Bayan was the first Latin American to play in the elite level of uh, what we would today, my people call the National Association, a major league. And Bayan uh, was playing in National Association for several seasons. Hmm. Uh, and that was in the 1870s. You know, kind of, and so this notion that baseball, that I think the, the second kind of misconception that people have is that Latinos learn baseball when they come to the United States. Right. But the reality is, if they're coming from the Caribbean and from most parts of Central America and Mexico, baseball is already part of the culture. They're already familiar with the game. Um, and in, in Cuba, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, parts of the northern coast of Colombia, um, Nicaragua, Panama, baseball is kind of the most dominant sport. And so 
it, we already see it as part of our, our culture, our heritage, and and it's not a recent game. Right. And so, whereas the story for most Americans of baseball is how their grandparents or great-grandparents became Americans by kind of adopting and learning about Joe DiMaggio or Ted Wazowski, you know, that that's Polish Americans or Italian Americans or, you know, whatever... That you know, we have our we became Americans by embracing baseball. Hmm. Latinos came with baseball, yeah, and so they they approached the entire participation in major leagues in a different way. And we see every now and then how that flares up in in uh, in. So that, I would say that's the second kind of misconception that it started with Clemente. Two that um, baseball is a recent phenomenon among Latinos, and I think the other one, and actually I would say. One of the kind of inspires the book playing America's game was that Latinos weren't really affected by the color line. Hmm. You know that the reality was the majority of Latinos played in the Negro leagues, right. and even like when you ask knowledgeable baseball fans, you start asking them to name star Latino players in the fifties and sixties, and and then ask them so think about their skin color. And realize that before Jackie Robinson, they were all would have been Juan Marichal, Orlando Cepeda, and uh, Lou Brothers, and Jose Cardinal, and guys who were all stars. They would all have been played in the Negro Leagues. Hmm. You know, they would have been just like Manny Minoso. They would have started in the Negro Leagues. Right. So actually, the color line affected them profoundly yeah. in how they entered, and even they also had a role in how the color line was played out. And I think early on, as I was doing my research and sharing my research and, and scholarship, they're, they're familiar with the popular telling of baseball's race story. And Latinos are not seen as, as part of that story until Clemente shows up. You know, similarly, this is my local Chicago version of this, you know, people don't realize that Minnie Minosa had been to four All-Star games before Ernie Banks even suited up for the Cubs. Right. Yeah, and like, that's the story of Latinos. That's the story of Black Latinos, and of Minoso. Like people not recognizing that he was a pioneer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the White Sox actually had a pretty strong. You talk about like Ozzy Guillen being manager and uh, Jose Contreras for a while. They have a pretty strong heritage with yeah, uh, you know, players at least. And, and I, I, I interviewed um, a year and a half ago Jose Abreu, and I t- asked him about you know what does it mean to have known and, and to have many you know so there and it's like you know in Cuba Minnie's like a god the reverence that people have for him because of what he went through and how outstanding he was as a ball player yeah it's funny in, in that how many Latin Americans and particularly Cubans just don't understand how in the world do you keep many out of the, the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. like you don't realize how they're saying. You don't realize how important he is. Right. Who's the first uh, Latin player in the Hall of Fame? Okay, so now you, you ask a, a very tricky question because Clemente it, was elected right after he right right away. after he passed away. Because some people, what, part of your question now you, you maybe throw on my academic hat <laughs> um, is that how do we define a Latino? Is left Vernon Lefty Gomez a Latino? Because he was in the Hall of Fame before Clemente. Yeah. Um, some people would call Al Lopez Hispanic slash Latino. Um, Al Lopez's family actually came from Spain, not from Latin America, so he's not even Cuban. 
Um, but the perception was, particularly in U.S. circles, was that he was Hispanic. But he was also very much light-skinned, if not readily accepted as a white Hispanic. Um, so do we count him? So there's those caveats. And then I even have been even thrown in Ted Williams. You know, because Ted Williams' mother was Mexican-born, and, and, and he has cousins who are Mexican-American, but he himself never identified as such in, during his playing career in, in a public fashion. Hmm. And I've had discussions with other baseball historians you know, who they want to claim him as Latino, and I'm like, I don't. Mm-hmm. Because during the era in which he was playing, there were white, lighter-skinned Cubans and even some racially ambiguous Cubans who played in the league, playing for the Senators, who endured racial hostility. Mm-hmm. You know, they were called Cuban N-words or Cuban SOBs, and, and it was a way that they were being received as non-white that Williams didn't deal with within professional baseball. Hmm. And Williams kind of writes about that in his own, um, uh, his 19, uh, when did it come out, 72 or 76. It's his autobiography, My Turn at Bat, hmm. that had people known that his mother's maiden name was Ben Zed, that they might have treated him a bit differently. Right. But the reality was most people, the public, didn't know that. And see, they just saw Ted Williams for the great, amazing ball player that he was, and even, you know, war hero that he was. My position on Williams is, and I've stated this both publicly and privately in conversations with people, is given Ted Williams' amazing story as an American hero, as a ball player, as a military vet who gave up years of his career to the service to his country, and then who astonished the baseball world on the day of his induction by giving focus to the, the realities that segregation and continued kind of racial approach to understanding baseball's past is what kept Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson out of the Hall of Fame. Who are we to throw the label Latino on him? Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't need us to do that. Mm-hmm. He, he stands alone. Right. We don't need to kind of throw, and in fact, he never put that mantle on himself mm-hmm. during his career. And in fact, there was a Mexican player on the Boston Red Sox just before Ted, Mel Amato. Um, Melo, he was known, um, who actually, you know, he was born in Mexico, but went to high school in L.A., and his father was a, a Mexican council official in, for representing Mexico in L.A., and, but Mel was a great ball player, and he played four or five years, well, Okay, maybe great's a bit much. He was a good ball player. Mm-hmm. He played four or five good seasons with the Red Sox in the 30s. And it's, it would not have been unprecedented for Ted Williams to say, I am Mexican as well. Right. Because Mel was there. But he chose not to. But he did. Yeah. So why should we throw it out? As, we, as you talk about players sort of leaving their home countries, you know, like a Jose Abreu, Yesio Puig, uh, is there any sense of loss there for those countries? You know, I envision this would never happen, but, you know, an American-born player leaving, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. going elsewhere to play baseball, I would, you know, I, I would feel a sense of loss there. In their home cultures, is there a sense of loss when these players come to America to play? 
you know, the sense that folk, I think, get more than loss is intense pride is really what they, because what they argue is we always knew that Jose Abreu could be a major league all-star. We always knew that, you know, a Jose Contreras can go and dominate and help teams win World Series rings. We knew that El Duque could do it. We saw the promise of younger brother Levon before he ever kind of, like, for them, it's like such a both confirmation and affirmation. Um, and so baseball fans in Cuba don't necessarily get to go to all the games they want to go. Mm-hmm. But they follow the careers of the players that they enjoy intensely. And so for those who don't necessarily get to go to every game in a way that we, you know, it's, it's really not a thing called a season ticket holder in Cuban baseball. Mm-hmm. But that intense knowledge of baseball and, and for them... You know, they, they have Cubans in particular, but Latinos in general as well. We've always had a way with baseball. And so I'll throw you another example. I, I got uh, last year to talk to um, Omar Vizquel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many people, when he first started shooting up through the ranks, would talk about Omar was a bit of a hot dog in their minds, or they would describe him as such because of how he fielded. it. You know, and, uh, you know, one of the things that... Uh, that Omar shared was about he grew up on bad baseball diamonds mm-hmm. and so when he's doing all these one handed plays with them without the glove and he's like that's the way I learned how to play baseball and just you know how do I best cover this as much territory as I can mm-hmm. on this really rocky field and if it works on those fields the smoother major league fields he's going to get to even more balls mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part, you know, the whole dynamic of how he used to turn the double play without having the ball go in the glove, but would catch it on the outside of the glove and throw down the first. And it went from something that people describe as, you know, he's hot-dogging it and all this stuff, or he's showboating, to trained regimen. That is, coaches in the minor leagues and spring training trying to get their middle infielders to perfect what Vizquel had done. Yeah. You know, because, you know, how many outs by this much at first was because you took away the amount of time it takes to retrieve the ball out of the glove and, and do your relay at first. Hmm. So given that influence, and you know, I can wrap up here, uh, given the influence of Latin players on baseball and the fact that they are the, what you call the uh, majority-minority in baseball, why uh, do you think uh, we have no Latin managers? And is, is that something that's on Major League Baseball's radar? Do they, are they concerned about that? Because um, since Freddie Gonzalez was, was fired mm-hmm. last year, we really haven't had um, right. uh, a Latin manager. Yeah, I think part of it is Major League team management. That is both the manager, front office, leadership, owners, and you know, executive vice presidents, they, for themselves, have not translated, also mentored or developed the bountiful knowledge and abilities of Latino players. Mm-hmm. Well, let me put it this way. People thought Felipe Ali was a troublemaker mm-hmm. because he was insistent that you treat the Latino player with respect. You know, he wrote that 
amazing with uh, Arnold ha- uh, Hano, uh, the Latin American ball player needs a bill of rights mm-hmm. about the ways in which Major League Baseball kind of takes advantage of Latinos and doesn't treat them with dignity and respect. And one of the really fascinating things is when you reread that 1965 article, you see that so many of the issues are the same. Mm-hmm. And so what's fascinating to me is how major league front offices have not committed themselves to like, how do we best position ourselves to manage to, for, and for leadership when we have so much money invested in Latino players, yeah. i.e. the Dodgers and Puig. Would a Sandy Alomar Jr. have a different relationship to Yasiel Puig than even Dave Roberts? Right. You know, I wrote a piece a, a couple uh, months back, what, and it kind of in res- reflecting on the firing of Freddy Gonzalez. Um, where have you got Felipe Alou? Like, it's incredible to think. Ten years ago, there were like seven Latino managers. Ten years later, there's none. And it's not to say, there's plenty. How is it that Dave Martinez can't get a job? Yeah, he's in, interviewed about ten times, but... Like, is he so flawed in interview? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think there's something else going on. Kevin Cash can get a job. Right. You know, Andy Green can get a job. You know, these guys who have a resume that reads less than Martinez... And everybody loves Joe Madden, mm-hmm. but you won't hire Joe Madden's right-hand man. Right, yeah. What happens, I think in part, is that a lot of front office execs and even owners, they want to get the next hot Latino managerial prospect. And after a certain while, guys who never even got a shot, hello Jose Pindo, mm-hmm. never gets a shot. Right. Then maybe the narrative becomes well. There has to be something. There has wrong to be something him. wrong with him because Tony Larusa didn't give him the, re- the recommendation. He said hire Mike Matheny. Right. And how many games did Mike Matheny have as a professional manager before he got hired? You and I have the same amount as he did. Right. Now Robin Ventura as well. Robin Ventura and you know Greg Council and Matt Williams and you know when you see the kind of the list of guys who were hired with zero managerial experience. And then you see the guys like Joey Cora, Alex Cora, Dave Martinez, Jose Akindo, Sandy Alomar Jr., Moises Alou, who have made indications that they want to manage. They manage in the, the Dominican League. They manage or, and coach for the USA ba- uh, baseball team or the Dominican national team. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're seeking out the experience. They're not getting the jobs. Yeah. In the end, it tells you more about the commitment that Major League Baseball front offices have to developing the Latino ball player into future leaders. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, what's this guy in Seattle? Is that Eric Wedge? Or was he, you know, it was, it was a Scott, mo- Scott Service. Thank you. Scott Service, it's about, he had a good relationship with Jerry DePoto. Mm-hmm. But... Ha- how does Sandy Alomar Jr. get in a good relationship with somebody? Right. And clearly, Dave Martinez's good relationship with Joe Madden hasn't gotten him beyond sitting next to Joe. Mm-hmm. Hopefully to a World Series, so people can at least say Dave was with the World Series right. team. 
But right, some of it may be kind of the herd mentality too. Where and Brian Kenny talks about this in his, his book, where uh, if you go outside of the norm, then that and it goes poorly, then it comes back on you as a, an owner or general manager. Whereas if you hire someone that everyone is expecting you to hire, i.e., a white former catcher. Then, uh, then it doesn't fall back on you, it falls back on the manager. So yeah. that's, that's probably some of what we see as well. Oh, yeah, and then I think part of that is, but is that good for the gang? Yeah. You know, I get back to, like, you're investing how many million dollars in SEL Queen? Mm-hmm. Dave Roberts knows what it means to be a black man in America, in Major League Baseball, but he doesn't know what it means to be a black Cuban in baseball. He doesn't know what to what it is to be a man who leaves your country. He can't really go back. Right. But there are other players who have the experience of what it means to leave your country, mm-hmm. and you know both the intense pride that people follow you with, but as well as the expectations and how to kind of keep balance, not spiral, keep your head. You know, there's there. That's what many Latino managers can't provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clayton Kershaw's going to be fine in, on the level of cultural adjustment. Queen's right. in Oklahoma City on his way back now to L.A. Right, yeah. And it's a lost month, not just of his major league career, but of your paying him to play in Oklahoma City yeah. instead of having him with the major league team. Hmm. That's a diversity issue. That's a front office imagination issue. Yeah. Um, it's a problem. Yeah, and here and there I refer to this is Major League Baseball's Latino problem. Yeah, and it's surprising that they still have it in 2016. Right. Yeah, such a such a fascinating topic, and appreciate your time. Uh, before I let you go, I have to know: Are you uh, pro or anti bat flip? I, I am. Uh, I would say I'm pro bat flip, and <laughs> uh, and I, as I told my class, uh, I'm teaching a sports society class this semester. You know, if you think Jose Bautista is the king of bat flips. If there was an Olympics for it, you would realize that the South Koreans would probably take <laughs> gold, silver, and bronze. Yeah. So. There are some hilarious YouTube videos with yeah. South Korean bat flips. Yep. Uh, appreciate your time. Thanks so much All for right. jumping on. Uh, folks can follow you on Twitter at ADBurgosJR. A-D-B-U-R-G-O-S-J-R. And then you're also a contributor for Sporting News, is that right? I occasionally send my pieces their way. So, yes. And you can check out both of his uh, books, which are on Amazon or wherever books are sold. All right. Thanks, Paul. Well, thanks again to to Dr. Burgos for jumping on with us. Appreciate his uh, insight. Such an interesting topic and fitting. Uh, I sat down with him earlier today. We're recording this on Friday. Yasiel Puig is back with the Dodgers uh, starting tonight. And uh, the Red Sox called up Yohan Mankata. Mankata, yeah. Mankata. He's from Cuba, too. right? Right. Cuban superstar, 21 years old, top prospect in baseball. Yeah, so it's definitely a topic that is of recent interest. Yep. All right, so moving on from one expert to another, Scott, our Foot in the Box Summer Flicks viewing guest this past week. Uh, We're going to talk some Sandlot with him, so here that is. All right, like I just said, uh, our viewing guest this past week was Scott from Champagne, and the movie he selected was Sandlot. Scott, welcome to the Foot in the Box podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. It's funny, uh, you uh, were our first in-person movie guest for Foot in the Box Summer Flicks. 
uh, and you live in Champaign, but uh, we're doing this interview over the phone. Do you think that's, yeah. do you think that's humorous? Yeah, I was actually a bit confused. You said we were going to do a over the phone interview, but that's fine. Uh, all right, so let's get into Sandlot, the um, movie that we watched. I guess uh, first, uh, you know, you pick the movie. Give us uh, just a take into why you chose it and maybe the impact it had on you growing up. Uh, I mean, I think it's just more of a, a fun movie more than an impactful movie. Um, but I think, you know, growing up, I, my summers were filled with baseball. Uh, I mean, I never had, you know, a, a group of friends like the Sandlot that we all just went to a baseball field and played together. Uh, but I think the the Sandlot was um, kind of like the the ideal summer, like the the picturesque summer growing up of just every day, you know, eight nine a.m. bunch of guys be at the diamond and play. Uh, so really, more than anything, it was just a, a a best case scenario more than anything super impactful. Yeah. So I I have a question about that. How many people do you think actually have a group of friends like that? Because I mean, I grew up in a small town, didn't have that, but I would imagine that'd be pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, I can't... I remember um, earlier in college, I think Peter might have been there, but we got a bunch of guys together to just play a quick game of pickup baseball. Oh, yeah. Um, and I just remember it being just the most complicated thing to set up. <laughs> Couldn't find the field. We realized that we could catch the equipment. Um, so it's got to be... You know, just the most fictional thing ever to have a group of friends like go play baseball like that. So uh, you mentioned that you didn't have a group of friends that you played with. Um, did you have a group of uh, friends that you kind of like hung out with all the time? Yeah. So growing up, one of my really good friends, uh, we played just like some of the craziest baseball games ever. We would like make our own games up um, anywhere from we would just throw ground balls back and forth and give each other scores based on how cool the play was to uh, like playing just like almost like imaginary baseball in each other's backyard. And you had that, that pitch stop thing that had the ball bounce back to you. And mm-hmm. we, we would pretend we were uh, each like our own team. Like I'm a Sox fan. He's a Cubs fan. And uh, so like we would, we would know the lineup and that lefty or righty throughout the afternoon based off of it. And, it, it was it was just that, that's what summers were filled with, uh, and it was just so much fun. Yep. Uh, so getting into the actual uh, movie, uh, yep. Paul tweeted a Grantland article um, that I also uh, was reading um, during the movie about is a ranking of the top uh, nine characters or the nine kids oh, in, the... in in Sandlot. Um, how many can you name on the spot? Uh, that's the Chase Serrano article, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've got, um, yeah, yeah. That's one. You got Squints. Yep. Got Pam Porter. (laughs) Classic. Yep. Scotty Smalls. Yep. Benny the Jet Rodriguez. It's five. Um... And then I can give you the faces of all the rest of the guys. I don't think I know their names. Do you know the black the black kid, his name? Yeah, wearing the the KC Monarchs hat. 
then there are the twins with the the younger the brothers where the younger one always repeats uh what the other other older one says Timmy and that tall tall lanky kid Timmy and Tommy Timmons Oh of course okay for you And then uh Bertram Grover Weeks is the full name okay. of the tall kid and then the the black kid is Kenny Denunez a valiant, valiant effort. Uh, let's uh, let's hear your top three of those characters. Top three of those characters. Yeah. Um, I think number one, you just got to go with with Benny. Uh, just the all around good guy, best player in the team guy. Um, two, I I love one of my favorite scenes is. Um, Porter scene behind the plate where he's just talking talking trash to the little league team yep. the whole scene, and then I think three's got to be uh, Squints. Uh, just that whole scene with Wendy Peppercorn is uh, just kind of ridiculous and hysterical. Yep, that's a solid solid top three for sure. Uh, next question: James Earl Jones, of course, plays the blind. Mm black uh neighbor to the field that um owns the the dog the beast do you think james earl jones is a better supporting character supporting actor in this movie or field of dreams i've assu- i assume you've seen field of dreams oh of course um i think you, i think i think field of dreams um because in the Sandlot, his his character was only you know in the movie for ten minutes, mm-hmm. um, and you know played an important important role of providing Smalls with the ball to give back to uh, his stepdad. Uh, but I mean, in Field of Dreams, you know he's just you know this random guy who's a writer and uh, can you know see these ghost players on the field. Um, Terrence Mann is his name. Yes. Uh, I just think I, I think in Field of Dreams his role is far more important, but you know, it's also just a I would say a completely different movie, which might might change his supporting role quite a bit. Scott, uh, I'm curious. Um, so obviously, one of the big things in the movie is that the baseball was signed by Babe Ruth. Um, what is the the most impressive signature you've ever collected? Um. So like I mentioned, I'm a huge White Sox fan, and actually the coolest thing I have is um, from the 2005 World Series, uh, Scott Pedsednik hit that walk-off home run, mm-hmm. uh, and for Christmas later that year, uh, my grandma actually like waited in this huge line and got this uh, signed picture of his uh, a swing from that game. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's definitely one of my favorite uh, sports memorabilia. So that's like a poster. No, it's like a framed picture from a nice wooden frame. I'm trying to think of a way uh, a future kid of yours could somehow damage that, but that's a little bit harder than a a baseball. Yeah, and I'd hope that Scott would raise a son that would know uh, baseball a little better than um, <laughs> Squints. Uh, my last question, I'm not sure if Paul has thought of any more. Uh, my last question, um, 
so Sandlot, made in the early 90s, uh, portrays, uh, you know, like we were saying earlier, not not probably reality for most kids, but I would say a lot more kids than today would play baseball with their friends growing up, uh, especially like Little League and organized baseball. Uh, today, it seems like that's not happening as much. So, Scott, I'm just curious to know, uh, do you have any thoughts or uh, uh, opinions on that? I It just seems like um, a lot of the, the people maybe our age or a little bit older um, who are raising kids just are uninterested by baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's probably a lot of just uh, the way kids are being raised these days and that they're more interested in things like basketball, maybe football, than they're at baseball. Um, so obviously, um, Paul, with um, a son already, uh, will make sure to set uh, many of the parents straight around here <laughs> that may not be raising their kids for baseball. <laughs> Uh, but it's definitely, I think, not definitely, but in my eyes, um, probably a generational thing of just an unappeal to baseball by um, a lot of people. Um, and, you know, obviously parents have a huge influence on uh, their kids. Will you let your son play football? Uh, no. <laughs> but I don't. But you, you, I don't, I don't, I don't you think enjoy, I can do that. You enjoy watching football, right? Yeah, I enjoy watching football. Um, but, you know, as a parent one day, um, who will possibly have a son, uh, I, I just don't think that I can raise a child to put them through such a violent sport at a young age. Yeah. Uh, you're a big Bears fan. Uh, do you have a wins prediction for this year? Oh, man. Um... I'm going to go with I'm going to go with eight and eight. Uh, I think the second year John Fox team will will surprise a lot of people, um, but I don't think that they'll be um, that special. Gotcha. Uh, well, thanks thanks for watching. Thanks for being our first uh, in person viewing guest. Uh, we appreciate the support. Yeah. Thanks for uh, the movie. I look forward to hopefully watching another one with you guys next summer. All right. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks to Scott for the time, both viewing the movie with us and then talking about it on the podcast. Another great season of Summer Flicks. Paul, I, um, first year it was a bit of a drag just set everything up this year our three movies. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. The logistics seemed to go a little bit smoother this year. Back yeah. to back to back Mondays. Yeah. And I didn't lose any Twitter followers. That's yeah. Good. That's shocking. And I think both years, I don't think I lost any. Um, so thanks to David, Matt and Scott. And, uh, I think, you know, if everything goes like we think it's going to, and our podcast is huge next summer, we'll be back. Right. Maybe a sponsor to foot in the box. Yeah. Um, so we did fun, bad baseball movies last year, 90s. Um, this year, I think next year, I'd want to go like the classics, mm-hmm. like the best baseball movies. So like Moneyball, Field of Dreams. The Natural. Uh, have not seen it. So I like that. Uh, to be decided, though. Okay, so bottom of the ninth, we'll go quickly here. Paul, first, say my name. Say my name, say my name. 
All right. Uh, so last week, I... no, say my name, <laughs> Peter. Thank you. All right. So uh, last year, or last week, uh, I did the longest name in baseball history. Do you remember what it was, Peter? Nope. Julius Caesar, Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, Calvin Coolidge, Julius Caesar, Tuscahoma McClish. So that was the longest name. Uh, this week, I want to do the shortest name. And uh, this person shares it with several people, but he has the best name, Ed Hug. That's E-D space H-U-G. He only played one game for the Brooklyn Superbuzz in 1903. Uh he filled in as a backup catcher uh, for half of a game, so not even a full game, but he has one of the shortest names in baseball history. Ty Cobb is six characters, so it's just a little bit longer than Ed's name. Um, but as I was Googling shortest name in Major League Baseball history, I was intrigued by the shortest game in time span in Big League history. Peter, do you know what the, the quickest game is? Oh, I'd go like hour and ten minutes maybe. Fifty-one minutes. Okay. Uh, game in 1919 between the Giants and Phillies. So both pitchers pitched complete games. If we could only get back to that. <laughs> okay, uh, next up, my Yahoo Answer of the Week. I went with a Sandlot-themed question. The question that I chose this week. In the 1993 movie, The Sandlot, why did Babe Ruth want to keep the Henry Aaron baseball card? Do you remember that part in the movie, Paul? Is that the dream? Yeah, so he just said the famous line. Oh, I do I do remember that. Heroes yeah. get remembered, legends never die. It's kind of like on his way out. He Yeah, yeah, so he can keep the Henry Aaron card. Mm-hmm. Do you know why? Any any uh, thoughts? I'm not well, sure we know what the right answer. Uh, Hank Aaron would have surpassed Babe's record. But did Babe Ruth the ghost know that? Yes. Otherwise, if he would have had no idea who Hank Aaron was... Why would he have ever wanted See, to I don't, I, it was like I, th- I don't think he had that knowledge. I think he definitely did. All right. So the subtext of the question from the Other, otherwise person he would asked have, it. He would have had no idea who Hank Aaron exactly, was. Exactly. That's the question. In the same lot, when Benny dreamed about Babe Ruth talking to him, Babe Ruth picked up his Henry Aaron card and said, I don't know why, but can I have this kid? Does anybody know why he would want it? Top answer. Because the babe was before Henry's time, he didn't know about him. Henry Aaron said, the bar for all African Americans in baseball. See, he didn't know. Oh, so I guess yeah, the African American piece. You know, Babe wouldn't have played with any other uh, black exactly. players. Exactly. I didn't realize he said, "I don't know why." Mm-hmm. Learn something new every week with Yahoo Answers. All right. Lastly, pick your team. I can only give a short update this week because half the games have been played. Uh, I had the Dodgers, who went 1-2 and two against the Rockies, and then Paul had the Mets, who won 3 out of 4 against the Marlins. And I guess I could check to see how they're doing this evening. Uh, while I do so, Paul, who is your team? I'm going with the Padres. Yeah, I'm starting to get down to teams that I haven't picked yet. So, <laughs> no, uh, no reason? I have no idea what their schedule is next week, and I assume they're bad. <laughs> I'm going with the Indians. I actually have the rest of the season mapped out today at work. I spent some time looking at schedules. Uh, tonight, to give you an update, the Mets lost 4-1. to Sorry, Paul. And then the Dodgers just started 
zero zero against the Padres. So in updated standings, I have a record of eighty seven and sixty three, and Paul, you are eighty five and sixty seven. So not looking good. Um, mm-hmm. When you listen to the intro, are you preparing a couple to, of times? To wrap yeah, that? I, I have. Yeah. Do you realize that's going to be very embarrassing? Yeah, it'd be pretty embarrassing. No, it's going to be awful. Yeah. I I haven't given up. I haven't raised the white flag yet. Okay, um one last nugget, Paul. August we just completed. It's our most listened to month in our history. Wow. According to analytics from Squarespace, who hosts our website, 479 listeners or listens or I don't know. It says it's unique listeners, but I just can't imagine that's true. So. so as a thank you to all of our fans, we're giving you this podcast free of charge this week. Sure. No no paywall. Nope. Um, and I wanted to mention a little tease. Playoffs are coming up in a, f- uh, a few weeks from now, and um, I've got a pretty cool idea. So we did the over-under for the regular season to keep people engaged throughout the year. Uh, I've got a playoff fantasy challenge that I think is going to be a lot of fun. I'm intrigued. That'll get everyone involved. So just keep that on your radar, and um, it should be fun. Okay, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there if you haven't already. All 479 of you, if you all did it, we would have so many more reviews. Uh, you can send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. Again, if all 479 of you send us emails, we'd have so many more emails. And you can follow us on Twitter, at a foot in the box. Paul, if all 479 listeners did that, we'd have so many more Twitter followers. That's true. We're at, we're like 130, 120. Yeah, came a long ways. I think our a foot in the box Twitter has surpassed my own personal Twitter yep. in terms of followers. Not mine, though. Okay, you can check us out online at afootinthebox.com. You can read all of Paul's unwritten blog posts on that website. Yep. You can read about Andrew McCutcheon in mid-August. Okay. Well, I think that uh, does it. Uh, We're going to carry out with um, a very timely song for Paul, who's headed to Memphis. Just a reminder, folks, keep a foot in the box. Talk to you next week. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Feet ten feet off a beam, walking in.